and elevate nutrition as a priority for government. And so that's the embodiment of the Scaling Up Nutrition Movement, which is 10 years old uh, this year. And we're trying to be at USAID that same level of better coordination, driving the evidence, and then elevating as a priority that cuts across everything we do at USAID because good nutrition will, in fact, improve everything. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen, an attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Okay, good day everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. I'm delighted with today's guest who will introduce himself as always as well. Sean, please go ahead. Uh, Thanks, Maurice, for having me. Uh, A real pleasure to join you. Uh, I'm Sean Baker. I'm Chief Nutritionist at the United States Agency for International Development. Um, And I'll get into a bit what what that position entails since it's still, I'm Mm -hmm. discovering a bit myself. Uh, I've worked in public health nutrition for almost 40 years. So uh, prior to uh, joining USAID, when I started in early February of 2020, I was the director of nutrition at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I would say those two positions have been real outliers in my career because most of my life has really been in the field. And perhaps that's where I would start by introducing myself is I I almost think that my Mm -hmm. real life started when I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Zaire. Um, I, my training, original training on undergraduate was to be marine biology, marine biology. Uh, and I was a Peace Corps volunteer teaching, uh, biology and chemistry in an agricultural technical high school in the very middle of what is now DR Congo. And over the summer worked with the local district hospital and missionaries to do what were then called well baby clinics of, of going out into villages, weighing and measuring babies, providing vaccinations and nutrition counseling to families. And that's when I really started my conversion from a marine biologist to seeing the incredible mm-hmm. power of good nutrition, good health, or kids' survival and kids' uh, kids growth. And so where, mm-hmm. when I come, my, my experiences at these headquarters positions, be it in Seattle at the Gates Foundation or in Washington, D.C. at USAID, I really feel my advantage is bringing to the table a real perspective of the field. Mm -hmm. And I see myself as this translator of what is the global evidence saying? How do we translate that into the realities on the ground? And and very importantly, how do you apply real rigor on the ground to designing programs, figuring out the bottlenecks of delivery of all these incredible solutions we have to save kids' lives? And then really communicating with researchers so that they're addressing the problems that are going to have the most resonance for the people we serve. Uh, And at USAID, I was attracted to the position because 
we are very much a country-facing organization. Uh, we have missions in uh, most of the countries where there is a high mm -hmm. burden of malnutrition, which is where I spent most of my life. We work hand-in-hand -hand with our partner governments, with implementing partners. And we have, we're one of the largest donors in the three big sectors that are necessary to drive good nutrition outcomes. The health sector through global health, the food system sector through our Bureau of Resilience and Food Security, and humanitarian assistance through the Bureau of Humanitarian Assistance. Um, and I often present my role as the embodiment of what we're trying to do with our partner governments, of trying to better coordinate nutrition issues across different sectors and elevate nutrition as a priority for government. And so that's the embodiment of the Scaling Up Nutrition Movement, which is 10 years old uh, this year. And we're trying to be at USAID that same level of better coordination, driving the evidence, and then elevating as a priority that cuts across everything we do at USAID because good nutrition will, in fact, improve everything we care about. Fascinating also the shift that you made from how you started and then ended up in this, this field, uh, Sean. Um, you know, what I wanted to ask you is, you know, I, I, I'm i very concerned like you also about SDG 2 and hunger. Um, and, you know, we made progress until, well, you know, recently. And I, and I think the, the pandemic has created... Uh, I think was was um, very much responsible for an increase again of the, the number of hungry people around uh, the world. So, yeah, you know, can you reflect on that? So, you know, do you agree? One and second. Um, so, what are some of the challenges now then in trying to address you know nutrition and hunger, um, uh, food, especially considering uh, today's uh, pandemic? You're absolutely right. I would say the pandemic, the COVID pandemic has been, to my mind, the biggest crisis that global nutrition has, has faced in 40 years. It puts the 2007-2008 food price crisis in perspective as being a relatively minor shock because this is a situation where every system that families rely on to nourish their children has been disrupted at the same time everywhere in the world. Uh, you've probably seen some of the projections that have come out from a consortium of researchers um, indicating that in the more pessimistic scenario, which is now with the way the pandemic is rolling out, more likely we might have uh, 13.6 million additional children suffering wasting, which is the deadliest form of malnutrition. Mm -hmm. That combination of increases in wasting and a drop-off in the provision of nutrition services could result in about 284,000 addition children's lives being lost to malnutrition. That's just in the immediate term. Also, in the longer term, um, more mothers being malnourished, more mothers being anemic, more children being born to malnourished and anemic mothers, meaning that more damage being done in utero and that perpetuation of a, a vicious cycle of fetal malnutrition leading to children who are born already malnourished, who are less likely to grow. And then even if they survive that malnutrition, uh, are 
we've deprived them of much of their physical and cognitive development. So it just reinforces that really negative cycle. I think it's exacerbated by this narrative of nutrition or malnutrition as a secondary impact. I think too often in decision makers' minds, there's almost this idea, okay, well, we deal with the virus first. And of course, dealing with the virus and saving lives lost to COVID is incredibly critical. But the Mm -hmm. second the pandemic hit, we were already starting to lose additional children to malnutrition and compromising their future. So we need to rally around that, yes, we need to fight the pandemic, but nutrition cannot wait. We need to be able to do both at the same time, continue to deliver life-saving nutrition services, nutritious food, particularly to mothers and children, at the same time we're fighting the pandemic. Um, On a more optimistic side, uh, those numbers I quoted are projections. And I like to remind people that projections are not destiny, that I think we have a set of tools to address this problem. And we have huge opportunities this year with the Food Systems Summit, mm-hmm. uh, where the pre-summit just start kicked off today, and the Nutrition for Growth Summit. And I'll probably talk to you about those both these incredible events. But I wanted to go back to even more basic of the fact that I am a field person. So what's given me the most energy and the most hope during this time is all these virtual conversations in lieu of field visits with our implementing partners, our partner governments, and seeing the tenacity, the innovation, the ability to adapt quickly to settings to figure out how do we keep critical services going on? How do we continue to elevate nutrition, even in light of all the competing priorities? Mm -hmm. So that I feel the foundations that we've laid down working hand in hand with partners for decades is really paying off because there is a a capital of capacity, innovation, and drive, passion to deliver the issue that Frankly, if we had not laid down all those foundations, it would be much worse off. The optimistic side, uh, the pandemic has tested these systems. It's tested the food system. It's tested the health systems. It's tested social protection systems. And now as we go back into rebuilding these systems, we know exactly where the weak points are that we need to focus on if we're going to deliver the promises of good nutrition for mothers and kids. So the pandemic is, has been a setback, could be a critical setback, but it's also, I think, given us enormous knowledge of how to do better, and we have an opportunity to use the political momentum of the Food System Summit and Nutrition for Growth to re-energize the nutrition agenda and get ourselves back on track to, make, uh, to meet the Sustainable Development Goals. So th- thanks, Sean. I, I would like to hear uh, more about those two events. You, you know, you talked about the pre-food summit, which started today, and the day we're talking is, is uh, July 26th. So I think the, the pre-food summit is taking place 26, 27, 28, if I'm not mistaken. And then the food summit is later this year. And then you were talking about another event as well. So explain what these events are about and why they are important from your point of view. All right. Well, let me start off with the United Nations Food System Summit. Um, 
to me, the fact that the world is now talking about food systems is a huge breakthrough because often people don't really look behind what's on their plate and how complicated it is to get something grown, processed, sold, transported to actually being our plates. Uh, and that's a very complex system. It's a system that at its heart should be delivering safe, affordable, nutritious food. People like me would argue that has to be the prime directive of a food system. At the same time, we know the food system is creating environmental damage. About a third of greenhouse, global greenhouse gases are created by the food system. And so, and uh, it's not just the food system is failing to deliver good nutrition, it's also delivering overweight and obesity and, and, and non-communicable diseases. So how do we have a reset to say, look, this is what we need out of the food system and how do we do it? From my perspective, it's a huge opportunity to really put nutrition of moms and kids at the center of this agenda, because fundamentally the food system has been failing children. If you look across low and middle income countries uh, and you look at what we call infant and young child feeding, particularly that period from six to 23 months, when breast milk alone is not enough, Kids have very tiny stomachs. We can't just cram them full of empty calories. We need to make sure, in addition to breast milk, they're getting nutrient-dense foods. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. only 17.3% of infants and young kids are getting a minimum acceptable diet. That, that's absolutely shocking. And, of course, part of that is the social and behavior change, but a huge chunk is just how unaffordable and accessible those foods are. Take a case in point of Niger, a country where I lived for nine years. Uh, egg calorie egg and calorie equivalents are 23.3 times more expensive than staple calories. So a mom who's trying to feed her infant an egg, very nutrient, very nutritious, or is trying to make sure she's getting an egg during a day during pregnancy, mm -hmm. is just totally out of reach for most mothers. So until we actually work with food system actors to say, getting these nutritious foods, making sure they're safe and accessible, we're never really going to address malnutrition. I often say so much of what we do in public health nutrition is digging ourselves out of a hole mm. created by a food system that's not delivering safe, affordable, nutritious food. Uh, the pre-summit is uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday this week, where we're getting People around the world are, are raising issues that will be then the summit itself, which will be around the, in the fall around the UN General Assembly. And then nutrition has another huge bite at the apple this year with the Nutrition for Growth Summit being organized by Japan uh, December 7th and 8th. And nutrition for growth is incredibly important because we started a nutrition revolution back in 2008 with the publication of the first Lancet series on undernutrition. But we didn't really get serious about financing for nutrition globally until the first Nutrition for Growth Summit in 2013 in London. And that's where we bumped up, if you look at donor resources for nutrition interventions, from about 400 million a year to about 1 billion, hovering about 1, 2 1.2 billion a year, just to give you. And then there are these other interventions through the food systems that we call, or social protection, that are also incredibly important. But that's just to give you an order, an idea of the order of magnitude. Now, th that um, obviously we 
we were supposed to organize the next Nutrition for Growth Summit in Brazil for the Rio Olympics, but for various reasons, as you'll recollect, related to a pandemic, uh, economic meltdown, mm -hmm. a political meltdown, that did not happen. But we pulled off a global nutrition summit in Milan. But this Nutrition for Growth Summit is really critical because it's an opportunity to get the health systems, the food systems, and the uh, humanitarian um, response systems to really reprioritize, get partner governments, donors, development banks, civil society, and the private sector to step up, recommit, and in fact, try to reverse those projections, or in fact, stand up against those projections that I spoke about earlier. So it's a time where I think your listeners, both for food systems and nutrition for growth, can get very uh, engaged in learning about the issues and communicating with their spheres of influence, because otherwise nutrition as an issue will be overshadowed by COVID, whereas we know, in fact, nutrition is one of the first victims of the pandemic. Hmm. And Sean, what, what uh, will USAID specifically do about, you know, these issues? Um, speaking specifically about the, these food, the food system, some nutrition for growth or in general? No, no sorry. Yeah, yeah, I should have. No, more, more about, okay, you know, increasing hunger, uh, yeah. nutrition, that's still a problem. So, yeah. Right. So um, let me step back. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that the way we have come together at USAID with our Nutrition Leadership Council, our Nutrition Technical Working Group, and then has allowed us to respond to the pandemic in a much more coherent way. Uh, so to give you an example, uh, we were early on, we recognized that uh, doing fragmented projections, what the impacts were of fragmented guidance would not be good. And that would have been our normal course of doing business. But because of the nature of this pandemic disrupting every stem, it was important to really have that all up view of what's likely to happen and how do we be very responsive across these different systems at the same time. So we were able to organize meetings with our uh, implementing partners and partner governments very early on, get together all of USAID guiding principles and recommendations on uh, nutrition in the context of COVID-19. As these projections were coming out, use get them socialized internally. So our missions and our leadership here in Washington were very attuned to what the potential projections were, using our voice to get not just prioritization by our own, agency, but also by our partner governments and our partner institutions. Um, and so it's really focusing on in the health system, how do you continue to deliver essential nutrition services while maintaining uh, appropriate uh, protections? How do you make sure the food system is continu continuing to deliver safe, affordable, nutritious food and avoid 
unintended negative consequences. So for example, in some settings, governments thought, well, companies are under pressure right now because of the pandemic. So maybe we'll relax the mandate to fortify foods with essential vitamins and minerals. At the very time when you meet, need those essential vitamins and minerals in the food system more than ever. So well-intentioned, but could have negative impacts. Or you have a lack of access to markets that are where most people with lower incomes, in fact, are buying nutritious food. So how do you keep them open in a responsible way? How do you keep trade going in a responsible way? And certainly, how do you continue nutrition services and humanitarian settings in a way that are maintaining the appropriate social distancing and all the uh, measures to prevent transmission, while at the same time you're delivering life-saving services? Um, we are using across, both within USAID, but then across the U.S. government uh, and with many of our mm -hmm. partners, uh, building up to the food systems and the summit and Nutrition for Growth Summit, seeing what, what we can bring to the table to continue to support nutrition, but also galvanize other actors. Thanks for that, Sean. And when you were mentioning, you know, the, the the number of people that are affected, the number of dollars that are required to really change this, um, do you think USAID has enough resources to, you know, to do all the work that it needs to do or, or facilitate? You know, I think that um, the magnitude of resources required to truly uh, move the needle on nutrition is really outside the scope of any one donor organization. Uh, mm. I think our resources are important, of course. Uh, we're trying to use our resources most effectively. But uh, we see it as really six main actors that need to come to the table, either mm. maintaining or growing their commitments. I go back first and foremost to partner governments. We need to make sure that governments are investing in nutrition. There has been progress, but we still have a number of governments where you look at key sectors like health culture, there are no line items. Or even if there are line items in their budgets for nutrition, they're not actually being dispersed. Um, the second, I think, incredibly important and related to those domestic resources are concessional financing. Uh, the financing that comes from development banks led by the World Bank being the, the largest. The reality of the fiscal space of our partner governments and donors right now is that it's tight, right? And so in the medium term, probably the biggest opportunity to grow resources is going to be through development banks. And particularly with the World Bank moving forward, the replenishment of IDA, there's a big opportunity to make a theme that's really focused on nutrition get governments to prioritize nutrition funding and get the World Bank to prioritize nutrition funding. Of course, we need to continue to work with donors. I think we've been very fortunate here in the US of having strong bipartisan support and support both across the House and the Senate for nutrition for a very long time, both through Feed the Future, our flagship program for hunger, poverty, and malnutrition, and through Global Health, which has an earmark for nutrition funding. And of course, the funding to humanitarian assistance has been very strong. So I think we're very fortunate in that. Uh, 
We also, though, we need to make sure that other donors are continuing to hopefully even step up. Uh, other actors we want to make sure we bring to the table are certainly civil society organizations like your own. Uh, you clearly have a role, a huge role in advocating both for those actors I've spoken about, but in both the 2013 and 2017 summit, civil society organization came together and made your own commitments within your own private fundraising. Uh, in the Milan uh, Global Nutrition Summit, uh, CARE led a coalition of, I believe, 13 US-based civil society organizations and promised $1.17 billion to nutrition. So that is huge because it sends not just voice, but saying we're voting also with our pocketbook and private fundraising this is important. We also want to make sure we're bringing to the table the private sector uh, because you know, in the food system, the private sector is a huge actor from that smallholder farmer to the trader to food processors, et cetera. Many, a big part of the interface between uh, the households, the most at risk of malnutrition and the private sector are small and medium enterprises. And often they are cut out of financial uh, mechanisms that actually allow them to produce nutritious food and certainly to take that production to scale. And so unfortunately it's wired that it's easier to produce on nutritious food. And so working with the private sector itself to come to the table, but also development partners who can support financing to those enterprises is going to be important. And lastly, uh, we know that philanthropies across the world are playing a bigger role. And uh, one of the out yeah. outcomes of the Global Nutrition Summit in Milan was the coming together of a coalition of philanthropies for global nutrition. And we hope those philanthropies will continue to step up uh, and play their part, both in terms of financing, but also in terms of voice. Um, no, that's that's really helpful and and, and you know very enlightening for for the listeners. Um, when I was listening to you, Sean, you you mentioned and and I I know this is important because we, as a world, we identified seventeen sustainable development goals and the role of governments is really important. Um, so and it might be different than you know the Millennium Development Goals before, but the question that I have for you is. You know, the number of displaced people around the world is uh, increasing. It's close to 80 million people. And what we have seen, you know, and not only within my organization, is that uh, displaced people often are forgotten, by, uh, are not considered as part of, of national plans who have to, you know, try to reach those sustainable development goals. So um, is there something that, that uh, you know, your organization specifically tries to uh, to do for you know people on the move to displaced um, because if you don't consider them then you're not going to reach you know the goal either it be SDD 2 you know ending hunger or ending poverty or you know name it right I, I have mm -hmm. let me ha before I respond specifically for USAID um, okay. let me let me give a couple of related responses um, First off, um, tying it back to the Nutrition for Growth Summit, uh, as that's been put together, there are three real pillars, health, food, and resilience. Mm -hmm. 
And that resilience is really these fragile settings because it's recognizing that while mm -hmm. the bulk of the mm -hmm. burden of undernutrition actually is still in development settings, in crisis settings, settings of displacement, those populations bear an inordinate amount of the burden and have particularly difficulties and 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 receiving the services that are required. So I I think there's a nuance there that's important because obviously incredibly important populations whom we serve, whom we need to be aware of their needs, where they are, and how do we make sure not that governments and other partners are meeting their needs. But we also want to avoid a false narrative where it's only conflict-affected areas that suffer from malnutrition. Because I've also been in settings where political leaders will think, oh, malnutrition, that's a problem of refugees, or that's a problem of displaced people, or that's a problem of conflict. Obviously, all of that exacerbates nutrition, malnutrition, but it also can give a false narrative that, in fact, malnutrition is not taking place in very stable settings where, in fact, we've just failed to deliver on health, food, and, and social protection. Um, obviously, USAID, uh, particularly through the Bureau of Humanitarian Assistance, is very much focused on how do we understand where vulnerable people are? How do we support the systems, both government and non-governmental systems, to address those? Also in the Bureau of Resilience and Food Security, and I think this is where, in fact, it was renamed resilience, it was recognizing that it's exactly those sorts of populations who need uh, special attention to understand how do you build resilient systems at a household level, systems level, mm -hmm. to be able to reach displaced people, not just in humanitarian settings, but recognizing that those are also populations that in fact, go in and out easily of mm -hmm. humanitarian to development needs. And if we're not meeting their needs in a, you know, that's an artificial divide that you and I think about. The reality, mm -hmm. these are individuals who are faced with crisis and the more vulnerable they are, mm -hmm. just one little crisis can push them over the edge. And how do you build resilient systems uh, leading with the government ownership? Uh, because it comes back to like what you said of, um, at the end of the day, it is our partner governments who have to bear the primary responsibility for ensuring all citizens, all people within their borders are receiving the essential services they need. Great. Thanks, Sean. Hey, I would like to take you to actually, you know, the, the reason that I started this podcast, uh, because it's a spin-off of uh, my 100-mile walk, which is a walk uh, to end hunger, to raise awareness and funds uh, around uh, hunger and poverty and injustice. Um, I started that 19 years ago. Last year, I could not be accompanied by others. So, and what I liked also about that walk, where I, you know, walk 100 miles in a week, is to talk with other people about you know problems in life, what drives you, what's the purpose, etc. So then I thought, okay, but I can still meet with people virtually. So let's let's do this. It's it's gone out of hand now because I told you before we started we are this is episode fifty one. But um, I hope it's it's somehow useful for the listeners. Um, but what I wanted to ask you, you know, if you were asked to walk hundred miles in a week to raise awareness about an issue. Uh, would that indeed be, you know, end hunger and poverty, like, you know, uh, why I do it? Or you would walk uh, 
yeah, for another reason, for another cause? Uh, there's a real short answer mm. and there's a longer answer. The short answer, obviously, I would walk 100 miles a week to end um, malnutrition among moms and kids. Uh, that's the short answer. Uh, the longer answer is that mm. my, my true obsession is saving kids' lives and making sure we're setting mm-hmm. up for good futures. And so I would say I actually was a bit agnostic about how to do that. But the evidence indicates that nutrition is probably our strongest tool to ensure that. 45% of under five deaths are attributable to malnutrition. Now, here you have a global health speak, right? Attributable to. That means that those kids probably died of something else. But if they had been well nourished, they would have been able to survive whatever disease was killing them, and they would be alive today. 45%, almost half of all child deaths. Uh, and we know that for those children who survive malnutrition, we fundamentally deprive them a lot of their cognitive and physical development. So we're just building this cycle of entrenched poverty. But what gets me incredibly excited is that we have an incredible set of tools. We know if we provide good nutrition at that thousand day window from conception through the child's uh, second birthday, both to the mom and mm-hmm. to the child, we can, on, we can avoid most of that damage. And in fact, being an mm-hmm. optimist, that's where the damage is done. But if we get things right, we lock that potential in. That potential for survival and thriving is locked in. And we have a host of solutions. Mm-hmm. What outrages me, and that's why I would walk at least 100 miles a week for this, is mm-hmm. it's pr- arguably the most under-resourced sector in comparison to the potential good that there is out there. And part of that, I think, is because nutrition looks complex. Nutrition needs different sectors. We, we as nutrition people, we can speak in very convoluted language. But at the end of the day, it's pretty straightforward of providing moms and kids good food, good health care, and for those need additional leg up, the, the social protection so they can access both of them, ha- really has miraculous impacts on getting, getting kids in a good shape and ready to survive and to thrive. And, you know, once you've seen firsthand, as I'm sure you have, just the power of good nutrition, uh, it's hard not to be obsessed about it. I fully embrace being obsessed about nutrition, but I posit that it's an evidence-based obsession. I'd be more than happy to walk 100 miles a week for it. Great. Yeah. And, and you know, just for the listeners, um, yeah, we, we know each other actually for quite a while, All, you know, despite the fact that we're still very, both of us very young. But, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, from I think my... <laughs> we first met in like kindergarten, probably, right? We were in kindergarten yes. together in Dhaka, Bangladesh. I believe. <laughs> yes. So the truth is, we know each other from Bangladesh, where we both worked. Uh, you know, I worked for the. Um, a Bangladeshi NGO, a partner of my present uh, organization. And uh, Sean worked for Helen Keller International. And, you know, both our organizations worked on nutrition-related activities, um, really uh, very much data-based, you know, using data, 
to really uh, implement programs that uh, we knew um, would make a difference. So, so uh, um, yeah, you know, I, I think our time that we did together with many, many other people uh, was very important for the understanding of, of uh, improving, you know, interventions around nutrition and hunger and food. So, um, yeah, I, I really cherish that. And, and uh, yeah, our, our friendship as a result of that as well. Um, Sean, an, another question is, you know, when I walk with, with uh, you know, folks, uh, we often talk about, you know, what, is, what drives you in life? Uh, why do you get out of bed in the morning? So what is that with you? Most fundamentally, it's, it's my kids. I mean, I'm blessed of having, uh, and, and my granddaughter, who, if you, and uh, just feeling so incredibly privileged to have those children and mm-hmm. um, the love they bring to me every day mm-hmm. uh, and seeing how they have grown and developed and then, and that touches back to my work on the, I mean, so for example, uh, two of my children, uh, Sarah and Moise are in Ouagadougou right now. Uh, most, all my family, except my eldest son, who's in Seattle, are in West Africa. Um, and um, I was walking through uh a park in Ouagadougou with Sarah and Moise and we were out birding and we came across, you know, these little girls who were very intrigued by me and the kids watching birds through binoculars. And, you know, we were just chatting it up. And at that point, uh, you know, my kids, Sarah and Moise were, uh, were nine and 12 and the little girls were 13 and, you know, Sarah was taller than them. And it's just, just that gives you an illustration of how, uh, nutrition, as much as it's complicated, it's also pretty simple. And the hidden phase of malnutrition, it's so insidious because people just don't see the damage being done uh, until you sort of see the contrary of all the good that's being done. And, um, you know, just, I, you know, this incredible hope that the good health that my children benefit from, my granddaughter benefits from, by having had access to good nutrition, good health, and hopefully a loving parent and grandparent, uh, that should be the norm for all children of the world. We are programmed to thrive. And when children are not thriving, it's really a result of deprivation. And I think that deprivation is an abomination that that we can put an end to. Yeah, th- thanks for sharing that, uh, Sean. Let, let us talk a little bit more about, you know, the younger generation. And and um, I would like to link it with religion and spirituality. Because, um, I, you know, when we talk about, when I talk with my guests, we often talk about purpose of life and then also about religion, spirituality. And, um, you know, some of my guests said, to me, you know, Maurice, uh, the younger generation is really not religious anymore. They might be spiritual, but, you know, um, the institutionalization of religion, so church is, is not that important anymore. 
and um, others said no that's that's not true you know it depends which country you are you know and and so my question to you is um, what do you see uh, happening around religion and spirituality with the younger generation and is that indeed different than how you grew up and how do you look at it now um I come to this with two two quite different perspectives because, uh, like I say, most of my family is here in West Africa, mm -hmm. and we're just coming off the Eid festival, the Eid of sacrifice, Eid mm -hmm. al Kabir or Eid al Hada, or here as we call it in Senegal, Tabaski, uh, which is one of the most important Muslim religious holidays, and. Uh, It's certainly an all-hands-on-deck celebration, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody is deeply, deeply involved in understanding the story behind uh, Eid, mm -hmm. uh, preparations, uh, celebration. Uh, the neighbors came up with a leg of lamb. And so I would certainly say from a West African experience, this idea that Uh, the younger generation are less engaged in religion, doesn't fit with what I see. Uh, mm. I would say quite the opposite. Uh, and I think it's also, um, it's also deeper than that in a way of even just some of the conversations I've been having with my kids since I've been back of the What's what? What's the what's the basis of religion in terms of the difference between doing something just for show versus the true spirit of religions mm -hmm. and the commonalities across certainly the Abrahamic faiths? Mm -hmm. I think again here in in Senegal, it's something even though it's by by far the majority of religion is Islam. Um, just how all religious holidays, be they Christian or Muslim are enjoyed by everybody and there's certainly a mutual, you know, people are invited to, if Christians are invited to all the Eid festivals and, and Muslims are invited to all the Christian holidays. So um, the, the other perspective I bring, again, I, having been in the field most of my life, I actually moved back to the U.S. in 2013. Mm -hmm. And among other things, I was asked to do a number of guest lectures, both in undergraduate and graduate programs. Mm. And to me, it was just absolutely revealing undergraduate programs in global development or global health. I mean, when I was going to undergraduate, I'm not sure even I even knew what global health or global development mm -hmm. was. But, and again, maybe not, but the, the, the young generation coming to the table with a real commitment to right wrongs, to understand what's happening in the rest of the world, how can... I, as an individual, step in and do something to correct that. Now, if that's fueled by uh, formal religion or a deep sense of spirituality, mm -hmm. um, uh, I think it differs from person to person what fuels that passion. I have seen more of an engagement of global issues and issues of global injustice than certainly when I was growing up. So that gives me a great deal of hope. Mm.
I, I like I like hearing stories of hope. So I, I, I definitely appreciate that. Um, Sean, music is is really important uh, to me. So I always ask some questions about music as well. Um, if I would ask you to mention a song or a piece of music that embodies, for a big part, what you are about, uh, which song or piece of music would it be? Um. I knew I was going to struggle with this one. Uh, and so it's actually a chorus from uh, 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 an opera by Giuseppe Verdi, uh, Nabucco. Uh, the chorus is Va Pensiero. Uh, my Italian's not good enough that I can mm -hmm. tell you the entire, but it's basically Fly My Thoughts on Wings of Gold. And it's a chorus uh, sung by the Israelite. Uh, slaves that are held in slave in bondage by the Babylonians, hmm. uh, and to me, it's a demonstration of the indomitable human spirit uh, on a very personal level for Verdi himself. Um, he actually was forced contractually to write this opera after he had suffered the death of his two young children and his wife. I mean, he was in a state that he was just ready to give up opera. And despite that state, he was able to create some of the most beautiful music in the world. And then, of course, it's this incredible outpouring of this people in bondage saying, despite our state of bondage, our thoughts can fly above that and we can overcome. And then the third point, that it's a chorus. Now, I love arias, you know, I... Mm -hmm the whole realm of opera, but yes. I think so much of what we need in life is a whole chorus of it doing it. Mm -hmm. And this chorus coming together is just a thing of beauty. Great, thanks. And and let me take this opportunity to you know uh, remind the listeners that you know I I, I asked many of, of my guests about this you know piece of music and um, so I, I uh, put them all together in a in a walk talk listen uh, Spotify list. So so if you go into Spotify and you um, search for hashtag walk talk listen, you find. Uh, all the songs that were picked by the guests of, of this podcast. And that is from, you know, opera, uh, jazz, um, you know, Brazilian music until heavy metal, all kinds of uh, piece of music. So it's, it's pretty interesting. I, I listen to it myself often because it brings me back to the conversations that I had with so many inspiring people. Um, Sean, I, I, um, we're slowly coming to the end of our conversation what I would like to, to ask you is any last message, invitation, or question for the listeners. I think I have five words for the listeners, and I'll then build them out. Okay. Uh, learn, learn uh, amplify, volunteer, give, and hope. I think both you and I are convinced that global nutrition is one of the most powerful tools to change a fundamental injustice mm -hmm. to ensure the kids we care about across the world survive and thrive. The more the public is aware of the issues, uh, the more powerful your voices can be. Taking that learning and amplifying in your circles, you know, certainly working for a donor organization, you know, are, we are blessed to have strong support 
across both parties, across both houses. That comes because constituents say this is important to us. We also know, uh, I think you and I probably were formatted nutrition because of our early life field experience, right? Mm. Uh, there are lots of up you can you can get even more impassioned when you actually volunteer, get in touch either here in the U.S. or elsewhere with opportunities with many organizations that work on global nutrition. Um, and then also, and I mentioned at this beginning, certainly, you know, I've spent most of my life in not-for-profits, and certainly we rely heavily on government funding, on funding from philanthropies. But what's worth its weight in platinum is donations from individuals and very small donations really become the lifeblood. And it also gives credibility to the voices of those civil society organizations. And that last point is hope. Uh, and I was going to actually close with a quote because I think we see out there in the world so many problems and it can see, and nutrition is an example of that. We were making progress, it's complicated, then we're hit by the pandemic, then the climate crisis. How can we ever meet the goal of ending all forms of malnutrition by 2030? And when we are overwhelmed as human beings, I think we just turn off. And I think it's important that we don't turn off, we don't disconnect. Mm. And having worked for Helen Keller International for 19 years, one of the great benefits is a lot of Helen Keller quotes. And one that keeps me motivated, uh, I'll share with you. I am only one, but still I am one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do something that I can do. So latch on to what you can do. Focus on that and drive the agenda of hope because despair is just a recipe for disaster. Thank you so much uh, for today, Sean, for, you know, sharing your stories, um, for, you know, for being who you are, um, you know, all the best with everything you do. It's, it's uh, so important. We'll make sure that there will be a link uh, to, see you, to USAID, the organization that you work for, uh, in the podcast notes and, you know, anything else that you would like to share, make sure that you provide me with that information and I will share it with our listeners. So, um, yeah, thanks again. Thank you so much, Maurice. It's good to connect uh, since we were both deeply formatted by our experiences mm -hmm. in Bangladesh. I think it's, a, it's an example of what can be done and the progress Bangladesh has mm -hmm. made in so many issues since you and I were working there is, I think, an ongoing source of inspiration. Okay. So thanks so much for taking time and inviting me. Thank you. for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.